podcast is brought to you by the Administrative Committee of the Presbyterian Church in America, promoting the unity, purity, and progress of the Church. Learn more about the Administrative Committee and support its work at pcaac.org. This is Gifts and Graces. Each episode, we bring you a seminar, sermon, or discussion from church leaders across the country and around the world designed to promote the unity, purity, and progress of the church. All Christians have communion in each other's gifts and graces, says the Westminster Confession. So on this podcast, we help you and your church benefit from the gifts and graces of other parts of Christ's body. On this episode of Gifts and Graces, we get to hear from Jonathan Intrican on ministering to servicemen and women who have experienced combat. He currently serves as a U.S. Army chaplain. This was originally recorded as a seminar delivered at the 2014 General Assembly. Let's listen as Chaplain Intrican teaches about ministering to military members in your church. Uh, my name is Jonathan Intrican. I am a chaplain in the United States Army. And uh, for the past three years, I have served at Joint Base Lewis-McChord, which is in Tacoma, Washington, with the Warrior Transition Battalion. That is our Army's wounded, ill, and injured warriors. Uh, and so I uh, have done that. I have served active duty for uh, seven years now. And uh, the information that I'm going to present today to you, uh, this is called a seminar. I'm not sure that that's the perfect term for it. Uh, in some ways, it's going to be report. In some ways, it's going to be rant. Uh, it's going to be just giving you information that I have gathered together uh, through my work with active reserve and National Guard soldiers uh, in the Warrior Transition Battalion, research done for the sake of my D-men that I'm working on on moral injury and bringing soldiers back to church, uh, as well as my own personal reflection. And I will say right off the bat, I am someone who suffers from uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, uh, and I also suffer from moral injury, something that we're going to be talking about today. Um, I like to think of myself as a high-functioning uh, sufferer of these things. Uh, however, I did not enjoy being down on the uh, uh, floor with all of the stands and the stuff like that. Too much cover and concealment for, for my liking. Um, so, we're going to talk about uh, moral injury. And look, I would not be an Army officer if I did not have some TLOs uh, to give to you. So, here's what we're going to be learning today. A brief explanation of moral injury in combat veterans, look at its history, why it's especially prevalent today uh, as opposed to in, in the past. We're going to look at what the church has done poorly. It, that may sting some, but it needs to be brought out, uh, as well as what the church needs to do now. Uh, the format is going to be, I'm going to give the presentation. Uh, we'll have question and answer uh, afterwards. If there's something I say that you don't understand, please raise your hand and ask because you're probably not the only one and sometimes we can get caught talking army language and you might get lost in it. So that's great. If, however, you have an aha moment or if you think, oh, that happened to me, I want to share something, for time's sake, please hold off on that. And I know that we have a number of, of chaplains who are in here as well. If you hear something and you think, oh, that's really debatable uh, about that, well, I encourage you come to the chaplain breakfast tomorrow morning at 6.30 and sit with 
either the chaplains that are in here or somebody else who's a chaplain and ask them about it. Try it on. See, maybe I'm lying. Maybe they would give you a different story. Uh, I'm pretty confident about uh, what I'm presenting, though. So anyone's uh, welcome to discuss any aspect of this presentation with me, uh, e either afterwards in the, in the question and answer session or afterwards or at any time following this. And this information will be uh, available uh, as well. They are audio recording this. I want everybody to look at this photo, and hopefully I don't need to dim the lights too much for you to see it. Uh, this is a soldier in World War II uh, examining the damage to the holy place in a church. Okay? I want, th this is rhetorical, don't answer back. What do you think might be going through that soldier's mind as he surveys that? I love this picture because it really is an accurate depiction of the destruction that can occur to soldiers' faith as a result of their deployment. So today we're going to be looking at moral injury and how to help restore the spiritual relationship between God and vets. For anyone here who is a veteran, uh, I will let you know there are some pictures in this presentation. Uh, in my opinion, they are not super graphic. However, what is very slight to one person may be a trigger to somebody else. Uh, so if that is the case for anybody here, my apologies in advance, and please feel free to get up and move around the room or lay down on the floor or whatever you've got to do. So moral injury uh, may be something that you haven't heard of before. Maybe you've just started to hear about it. It's starting to become popular. It's a term that was first coined in 2009, although it describes a concept that's been around uh, since uh, Cain and Abel. Uh, the term uh, was first coined in terms of, of looking at it as far as our combat soldiers and do they have this as a condition uh, by uh, uh, Brett Litz, who is a doctor working with the VA in Boston. But the term itself was first used by an author uh, named Jonathan Shea, who wrote a book uh, called Achilles in Vietnam. Uh, and that is his working with Vietnam vets, he saw parallels with uh, the Greek tragedies and so he would uh, take the Greek tragedies and he would point and show, look at the PTSD going on in these folks. So that's where the, uh, the actual two words put together was first done by Jonathan Shea. Some have heard the term connected uh, to combat vets and they've wrongly assumed this is just the same thing as PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. But we're going to see today that they're very different. Uh, so to begin to understand the differences and what exactly we're talking about, Let's look at some definitions, okay? So with moral injury, it's something that can take place in, in, in three possible ways, okay? And uh, it, let, me, let me just say in advance, because I see all the eyes up there, and that's great and that's fine. I'm not someone who just reads my slides. I can't stand presentations like that. Uh, so it's fine if you're reading the slide while I talk to you about something else. Just I'm hoping that you're doing both at the same time. So... Moral injuries occur when somebody does something that violates their deeply held personal moral conviction, moral, right or wrong. When they do something that violates that, they can suffer a moral injury from it. doesn't mean that they're always going to. I mean, I don't know how many cookies I stole as a kid. I don't have any moral injury from that. But that is an initiating action that can cause moral injury for somebody. A second way that is closely related to that is observing or witnessing actions that violate deeply held moral convictions. Okay? 
So these uh, transgressions, they can arise from either things that are done actively uh, or passively, uh, acts of commission or omission. Um, so, uh, you know, sometimes people are, are passively exposed to things uh, that will cause this. So, in, an act of transgression that leads to a serious inner conflict because these experiences at odds with core ethical and moral beliefs is called moral injury. A third way is by betrayal. If the, if the last slide was what we did and what we saw, uh, this one is what we experienced or what was done to us. Uh, I have yet to encounter a veteran uh, who can't identify somebody that they felt screwed them or who they expected to do the right thing uh, but failed to come through. Again, it's important to point out and to understand that the thing that causes moral injury is not the event itself. It's the response to the event that the person uh, interpreting it draws from it. So, in other words, five soldiers can participate in the same event. Uh, it may be a horrendous massacre kind of thing. It might be a very, what some of us may consider, small-scale thing. Five soldiers may uh, engage in that. For two of them, they might recognize, hey, this really violates what I was raised, what's right, what's wrong. Yeah, that, that was wrong, what we did. But maybe for only one of them does it become something that hangs them up and that they're constantly uh, oppressed by the fact that they did that. And we'll look a little later about what that haunting looks like. So these I put up here is just some sample things uh, that go on that if, if you're not military... Uh, you may not be aware, or you may think, oh, you're talking about doing wrong things uh, when deployed. Well, you must only be talking about, uh, you know, killing people or killing innocent civilians or things like that. But there are a lot of things that go on, and folks who have been deployed will tell you that the, the slogan, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, that kind of is a mindset that falls on people when they are deployed. And there can be this entitlement mentality, even for those who were raised in the church, or even are active in the church when they're deployed, that says, because my life is in danger, the rules don't necessarily apply here like they do back home. Uh, so there are a number of personal unethical uh, behaviors that take place. Uh, chaplains are not immune to this. Chaplain assistants are not immune to this. In fact, the more formal the moral community and I'm sorry, I'm going to keep using that term. Primarily, I'm talking about the church. Uh, understand this presentation gets shown to in a pluralistic, pluralistic setting with, uh, with the military as well. But the, the stricter or more formal the moral community that a soldier comes from, the more keenly aware and that they will feel the moral injury when they do transgress these things or observe or witness these things. There's also observations uh, that take place. Uh, that can really shake people up. Uh, I remember uh, going back, I had a soldier who uh, really struggled. He uh, watched, and I won't go into details here, but uh, they watched local uh, civilians who were really bad guys uh, use a child in a bad way to stop a convoy so that they could blow themselves up. And he wasn't upset with the blowing himself up. He was upset with the fact that someone would do that to a child. Uh, and that really hung him up for a while. So even the, the things that you observe trying to do good can be issues that cause you to suffer from moral injury. Question. Yes. You mentioned blue and green. 
Uh, Blue-green, thank you for that question. Uh, Blue-on-green is what we call it when, for instance, uh, we train the Afghan National Army and the Afghan National Police, the ANA and the ANP. Uh, there have been a number of times uh, where those forces, uh, a member of those forces, usually a single person, uh, will turn rogue and will turn and will attack uh, our forces, uh, which is something that you observe, can be traumatic, but it is also a, uh, a betrayal uh, because here's somebody we've invested in, you know, I'm over here teaching you how to defend yourself from the bad guys. It's one thing if you just wanted me to leave so you could be a bad guy, but you're now killing me for my efforts. Kind of thing. Thank, thank you for that. I appreciate that clarification. So there's also betrayal by moral authorities uh, in war. When soldiers, uh, a lot of times soldiers are very idealistic about what are we going to do. Uh, uh, you know, I'm going to go rid uh, the world of evil. I'm going to go protect my family by fighting over there so I don't have to fight over here, that kind of a thing. Uh, and there can be betrayal that takes place that causes deep moral injury. Uh, we had a uh, an Afghan civilian who was working with the United Nations to, to uh, demine uh, land over there and uh, a mine blew up and his hand was badly damaged. And we uh, got him back to our aid station and called for medevac uh, to come from Bagram to come pick him up and take him to uh, the surgeon. We have a hand. If you hurt your hands or your digits, the Army's real big on we got to fix that immediately. Uh, so we called, uh, hey, send a helicopter to come get this guy, take him to Bagram, he can have his hand repaired because uh, this is a good guy. Their reply back was, no, we're not going to do that. To which we said, this is one of the good guys. He's demining, he's working with the UN, and the reply back came, the American people don't pay us money to fly towel heads around to get free surgeries. So, for the people in the aid station, myself included, who were working with him, uh, you know, as a chaplain, sometimes you're helping by monitoring vital signs and re being the one recording stuff while the medics work on somebody. That all just kind of hit us as, what are we even doing here then? Uh, word came down, tell him to go to the local Afghan hospital, which we all knew. If he does that, then they're going to say, how did this happen? Well, I was demining a mine. Oh, you're working with the UN? Well, now we're going to tell the Taliban who you are and what you do, and you'll be killed. So we had nothing for him and basically had to just bandage it and tell him we're sorry and watch him walk away from the fog. That comes across as betrayal by people in legitimate authority that were trusted to make a right, wrong, good, evil, correct decision that doesn't come down the right way. Now, we talked about PTSD, but it's important to understand that even though PTSD, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, and moral injury can look very similar, they're actually different. But service members can have both, okay? Uh, because they're different, the treatment and the methodology used needs to be different. Um, so let me, let me see if I can do this. I, oh, look at that laser pointer right there. So the predominant painful emotion, guilt, shame, and anger, as opposed to fear and helplessness. With PTSD, there's very often a physiological response, people breathing heavy, people sweating, feeling like they're going to pass out. You don't have that with moral injury. They could be sitting right next to you and you have no clue. The necessity that's lost for PTSD is safety. For moral injury, it's trust. 
You know, I have a lot of people who will say, well, what's the difference between those? Aren't those the same thing? Isn't safety and trust the same? And I give them the following uh, illustration. So, uh, somebody with PTSD can sit in this room with all of you guys, and they can trust all of you. They can say, look, none of you look like you're hostile. You don't look like you are a threat. Um, and yet, I'm afraid that at any moment, a mortar is going to crash through the ceiling and kill all of us. So I have no safety here. And so you hear of symptoms like hypervigilance, always, always on, always on guard. Uh, someone who has lost the ability to, to feel safe, that's what they're going to experience. Uh, they're going to sit there and feel like, we're all going to die. For someone with moral injury, they could come into this room and they could sit down in any of those chairs and they could say, I have no sense that a mortar round is going to come through and crash in here. This is Houston and this is a huge building and, you know, we're not in a danger zone. However, I do not feel like I can trust any of the people in here. So that's a significant difference, okay? Again, you can't always see it just looking at somebody and their behavior, but you can understand, you know, think about this, what would it feel like inside for someone with PTSD to sit there, oh man, they're always afraid something bad's going to happen. What would it feel like inside for someone with moral injury to sit there and feel like, I don't feel like I can trust anybody that's in this room. Now, apply that to a church setting. And you start to kind of get some ideas of why is it difficult for combat vets to go uh, back to church. So uh, I, I said that moral injury goes back, uh, look, cat out of the bag here because we're not really in the military here. Moral injury is another word for sin. <laughs> Uh, it, it dresses up and plays better with others when you call it moral injury. Moral injury, you can see it all the way back going to Cain when he killed his brother and when he's expressing, uh, you know, this, this punishment is too much, I'm removed from God. So he's recognizing my spiritual relationship is damaged as a consequence of the thing that I did that violated uh, deeply held, understood, moral convictions, right, wrong, don't kill uh, my brother, and yet I did. Um, and uh, like I mentioned, Jonathan Shea talks about, you can see it throughout uh, Greek uh, tragedy stories. But you can see it uh, in more recent uh, examples. The American Civil War, soldiers would write uh, back journals and letters and diaries talking about the guilt uh, that they felt uh, for what they had done. Um, most famous is, uh, uh, or, or to, to us is the Vietnam veterans, uh, who a lot of times just get labeled PTSD. Uh, but in fact suffer moral injury, this, uh, what Shea calls the undoing of character uh, that they experience, as well as um, Colonel uh, Grossman uh, in his book uh, talks about the burden of killing, uh, the psychological burden of killing that goes, goes along with that job. Um, so, uh, you know, especially more prevalent in the Vietnam generation compared to previous ones in World War II, uh, it was a lot easier to, forgive that sentence, but it was easier to go in a plane and carpet bomb a city because you could believe what leaders told you, Hitler is evil, therefore we must do this, as opposed to Vietnam where you had soldiers who were going and, uh, you know, sometimes taking out a village because the leader said to do so and it was harder to believe 
were these people evil and harder to, to make that connection. So how did we get here? Uh, this, is, this is kind of my take on why moral injury is more prevalent now than ever. Uh, and it's these, these things. War is, is a rite of passage. Conflict is a rite of passage. And I think that that has failed to be recognized anymore. Historically, combat was prepared for. Did anybody here, and this isn't a big crowd, and y'all don't look as old as some folks I've talked to, but anybody here, did their dad take them out in the backyard and teach them how to fight? Anybody? Or anybody know anybody that that was the case for? Okay, yeah, yeah. Was it because your dad wanted you to be a professional fighter? Or was it because there was an understanding in life you will most likely engage in some kind of physical altercation at some point. I'm not saying I want you to, but I'm saying I expect it so much that I'm trying to prepare you for it when it comes. That is virtually unheard of anymore. People don't teach their kids to fight. They teach their kids not to fight. They teach their kids to do anything in the world but fight. Uh, nowadays, it's no violence at any cost. Uh, I, I'm going to tell on myself a little bit. I have a uh, 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 my youngest boy, Ransom. Uh, last year he was in first grade, and uh, I got a call from the teacher saying, "Hey, you need to come pick your your uh, your son up. Uh, you know, he he was choking out a kid." <laughs> oh, what? Okay. Um, Ransom's kind of small, and that doesn't sound like him, but okay. Uh, come to find out, uh, the boy sitting next to him had taken his pencil, and when Ransom had asked for it back. Uh, he refused to give it back. When Ransom continued to ask for it back, the boy started tapping him with his own pencil. Ransom got frustrated and so, you know, grabbed him physically. Uh, my kid doesn't know mixed martial arts. He wasn't, I don't think he was really choking a kid out or whatever. You know, he probably just got him around his neck. Um, but so that's what happened. Now, I was able to talk with Ransom about, uh, look, uh, there are other avenues other options, you didn't use up all your options. Uh, you know, there's a teacher in the room for more than just teaching you subjects. There's a, there's a grown-up. You could have appealed to the grown-up, to the higher authority here, rather than immediately going to physical blows with this other kid. At the same time, I'm not going to punish a kid for recognizing at that young age this is injustice, and I want to fight against injustice. In fact, it provides a, a great fertile talking point about do you know, do you remember that feeling you had, that sick, angry feeling when you recognized the injustice of that? I want you to remember that, and I want you to have that when you see injustice, and I want you to use that feeling as fuel to fight for justice everywhere that you go from now on, because fighting for justice is a good thing. I don't expect a first grader to understand all of that. You're, you're a parent, you have to teach it, okay? But you would have thought that the school system thought that he had brought in guns and knives and a sword and whatever else and was just a menace to society, and how dare there be any kind of physical contact with, with another child. To which I'm thinking, well, the other kids started it with the pencil thing, but that's, that's kind of a, a, a silly side point. But historically it was prepared for. Now it's not. In fact, it's suppressed. So where do kids get to be violent anymore? Bingo! Video games. There's no threat of physical violence. That's, that's right. I get to be violent in video games. I get to channel it in here. So there is no understanding of a correct context for violence. 
hear me well, and I hope I'm being recorded, there is a correct context for violence when needed in the pursuit of justice. But when kids are denied teaching on that, then they don't know how and when to be violent. They're sinners, so they're going to be violent. They're going to do it at the wrong time, the wrong place, for the wrong reason. So, historically it was prepared for, now there's no context. Secondly, historically, war was personal. Uh, you knew who it was you were fighting. Uh, whether it was Native American tribes, uh, you know, you, you've got to go uh, engage the other tribe in some kind of conflict, whether it's wrestling, whether it's stealing a feather, whether it's beating somebody up, even whether it's killing somebody. You knew who it was. You probably knew their name. You interacted with each other. You saw each other face to face. Uh, it, was, it was personal. Uh, in World War I, trench warfare, the British and the Germans fighting each other uh, you know, to the death. It's Christmas Eve. Everybody gets out of their trenches and they start interacting with each other and they exchange gifts. They start singing Christmas carols. They don't even speak each other's language, but they're singing each other's songs because it's Christmas Eve. Uh, they even play a soccer match together. Germany won 1-0. And it's like the first uh, World Cup. <laughs> uh, and, of course, the Germans won. Um, days later, the German officers and the British officers, they're having to kick their soldiers back into the trenches so they'll go back to fighting. War used to be personal. You knew who it was. If you got in a fight at the, in, in school... It wasn't a strange, you know, you didn't just say, I'm going to go attack that guy because of what he's wearing. You knew who it was. Nowadays, that's not the case. You can be blown up by a roadside bomb that was put there two weeks ago. You can sit in a little trailer in Nevada and fly a Hellfire missile into a compound killing 18 people. You've got no idea who they are, and you're not being told who they are. That's not your job. You're not at the pay grade to be told who it is. You're just told where to fly and what to hit. And then your 12 hours is up. Get back in your car, go back to your wife and your kids or your husband and your kids. War is not personal anymore. Conflict is not personal. In a counterinsurgency fight, there are no uniforms. You walk into a town, anybody, everybody could be here to kill me. And the only way to equalize that is for me to be ready for anybody, everybody to kill them. That's a lot for people to weigh on themselves to walk into a town prepared to kill anybody and everybody there. Lastly, and maybe most importantly, historically, uh, conflict involved a ritualized return. There was ritual for soldiers to return from combat. Going all the way back to the 400s, even the church recognized, hey, if you've gone out and you fought, there needs to be something for when you come back. It's not going to work for you to just come back and rejoin us as if nothing has happened. It's not going to work for us as a, as a church, and it's not going to work for you, the soldier. And historically, through the centuries and across cultures and nations, there have been rituals to mark the end of conflict, the end of battle, the bringing of peace to bring absolution to people who, who've got blood on their hands, either figuratively or literally, in order to bring them back. We don't have that anymore. How many of you ever, how many of you have siblings? Did you ever get in a fight with your sibling? Did, you, did your parent ever make you, what did you have to do? 
Yeah, I had to get forgiveness. What did it often look like? Did anybody have to sit on the front porch hugging your sister for like an hour while everybody else went by on their bikes looking at you like, what are you doing hugging your sister? You know? All right, maybe that was just me, but you probably know other people who did that. Forgiveness. Ritual involves forgiveness. One of the most healing things that goes on for Vietnam vets today is trips back to Vietnam where soldiers end up seeing people who they fought against, people whose family members that they killed. For some folks, people who held them in captivity, uh, and now they're able to seek forgiveness from each other. There is no way to ask forgiveness or get forgiveness from terror. That's who we're at war with. We're not really at war with the Taliban or Al-Qaeda or whatever. I mean, maybe some, you know, that's where the bullets are going, but I've not seen any war documents drawn up that says we are looking for terms of surrender from this particular organization. We're in the global war on terror. Terror can't apologize, therefore I can't get any peace from my conflict with terror. Even if I spend my entire adult life and professional career engaged in a war on terror, I will never be able to get peace from that. I may get ceasefires here and there, but I will never get the cessation of violence from that. Now, for the soldier, uh, moral injury involves the community, and that's why you guys are here. Otherwise, I could just say, don't worry, I got this. I'll, I'll take care of everybody. <laughs> I'm silly. Uh, but the community is involved. Because for the soldier who goes off to war, now I'm talking primarily, now I'm talking about a small percentage of folks, but I'm talking about folks that you guys interact with. People for whom they were active in their church prior to their deployment. Now, active can range from regular attendee to member to, you know, they're the, the youth director or the assistant pastor or, uh, you know, they teach Sunday school on a regular basis, okay? That person, when they go off to war, when they come back, they are different. They are changed. It doesn't matter if they're a trigger puller or if they delivered the mail on the fob. Either way, they are different. Twelve months away from normal life will change you. And it's a mistake to think, oh, now that you're back, we flip the switch and you change back. Because that change is like a scar. Now, scars typically have negative connotations. I'm trying to, as much as possible, not give it a negative connotation for, for this point. I'm just saying a scar doesn't go away. A scar stays. If you get scarred, you are permanently scarred. doesn't mean that you can't do other things, but it means as you do them, you're going to be wearing that scar when you do them. So uh, I'm someone who likes to think logically, so this helps me to think of it in terms of X and XY. So we can think of the church, the community of saints, the people together, as all beings, or having the quality of X. And when our Sunday school teacher leaves and deploys and comes back, he recognizes, I am no longer X. I am XY. I am different than what I was. And there exists this difficulty in coming back because the soldier can still recognize you guys are X. You're not XY. You didn't deploy. You didn't experience what I experienced. So you're still X, but I'm XY. And I don't know if XY can get back into this circle called X. 
And when this group, called X the Church, sees the soldier come back and they say, Welcome back! When can you start teaching Sunday school again? Because I'm tired of it. Uh, what the soldier hears is not, Welcome back, XY. What they hear is, Welcome back, X. Good to have you back with all of us, X's X. So glad that you, X, can apply your Xness to our kids and help make them X. And so for the soldier, what they hear is, all right, I'm already worried that I'm different, but now hearing their invitations and them totally not recognizing that I'm something other than just X, that just terrifies me even more because if I join the circle, it's going to end up coming out, I'm not X, I'm XY. And then I risk being kicked out of this group. In addition to, I don't feel comfortable because I think everyone else is X, I don't feel comfortable because they may not accept XY. That's part of that trust issue. Okay? So there becomes a me versus them mentality. And this goes with any group that shares that same moral conviction. So we could call the X the same Judeo-Christian, Reformed, Presbyterian, whatever, moral convictions that we live by. Typically families all share the same moral convictions. Churches do, and in a lot of ways neighborhoods do, depending on where you live, maybe. But as a result, the veteran struggles to transition back to all of these groups. So, uh, if you're not a fan of XY, how about flowcharts? This is for the engineers, okay? So, moral injury takes place in two ways, a violation of moral convictions or witnessing them, or it can happen by betrayal by authority, okay? Now, here are the primary uh, results that come about for soldiers about that. When it's a violation of moral convictions, then you commonly have guilt and shame. I feel guilty for what I did. Or I feel ashamed of what we did. I'm ashamed of what our unit did. Maybe even I'm ashamed of what our country is doing. When it's betrayal by authority, the common uh, responses are anger and doubt. Now by doubt, I'm talking about the opposite of trust. Trust has to do with relationships. Okay, So this is doubt in light of relationships. For all of these four things, they show themselves in isolation. So when a soldier who's active in their church community deploys and comes back and then doesn't seem to really come back into the church, you are seeing the isolation that is typically the result of guilt, shame, anger, and or doubt that's going on in them. And odds are they've suffered moral injury on their deployment. We also see this in families. If you've ever heard somebody say, you know, your Uncle Jim came back from Vietnam, but he never really came home. Well, this is what they're talking about. Uncle Jim isolated himself because he recognized, I am X, Y, and everybody else back here, my family, my church, my job, my community, is X. And, you know, because either I'm angry at that group X, because I feel betrayed by them, or I feel guilty and ashamed that I'm no longer X. I can't be with them, so therefore I'm going to isolate myself away from them. So this shows itself in a number of ways. Uh, misconduct and violence. Typically, uh, you know, we have a lot of soldiers that act out when they come home from a deployment. For the soldiers I'm talking about, uh, this can show itself in uh, uh, various ways that can look like what we call backsliding. I hate that term. Backsliding, you know, uh, usage of uh, uh, pornography, having marital affairs, drug use, 
uh, alcohol abuse, uh, sinning and anger, being cruel to the kids, things like that. Things that people struggle with. I mean, these are common sins, uh, but this is how someone with moral injury can end up acting out uh, as a result, as a symptom. Uh, as well, social alienation and alienation from the self. Uh, you alienate from the self because the, the, the questions that are at the core, who am I, uh, you know, if a person has grown up, especially in the church, with a concept that says more or less, I try to be a good person and live according to what the Bible wants, and that's who I am, who am I now? that I have experienced these things or that I have done these things or that I'm feeling this way. Loss of faith can be due to unsatisfactory view of the self or unsatisfactory view of God as the moral authority. Because if we're honest, when people feel betrayed by the legitimate authorities, you remember that's one of the ways that somebody gets a moral injury, it doesn't take too much connecting the dots. You know, you ponder it, well... Who's ultimately responsible for the person doing the error that didn't come help out this Afghan who was helping us? Well, who's above them? It's the division commander. Well, who's above them? It's the stupid uh, you know, corps commander and his rule that says this. Well, it's above him. It's the president that has us here in the first place. Well, who even is in control of who gets elected and what kind of a person they are? You know what, God? You're on the hook. And it only took me a little while to connect the, the dots far enough to see uh, the person I'm angry at is God. Honey, it's Sunday. Let's go to church. I don't want to go to church. First of all, I don't feel like I'm like that group anymore. And right now I'm angry at the, people, at, at the person that that group represents. So I don't want to go there. And if I go there, I'm going to have to listen to somebody talk to me about that person that I'm angry about. So I'm not that interested in going, thanks, you take the kids. Uh, I think I'm just going to rest. So the challenges for healing on this. A lot of times soldiers come back to the church and they're expressing difficulties, and uh, unfortunately, because PTSD are the only four letters that church people know, uh, it becomes, well, how can we refer you out to a behavioral health, or do you know a good counselor, or here's the, uh, the contact card for a good Christian counselor. And uh, the problem with that is most people with moral injury have been given to this point the same treatments that people with PTSD have, and it doesn't work. Now, this is not me knocking PTSD treatment for PTSD, uh, but look, if I, have, if I have cancer and a broken leg, just giving me chemotherapy is not going to fix my issue. I need specific treatment for my specific issues. And it may be I don't have PTSD at all. Maybe all I have is moral injury. But you're sending me to someone who's going to treat me the wrong way. Because moral violations are sin issues, even if the soldier is not super religious, therapists that they get sent to typically uh, are not very uh, effective because they are not moral authorities and they can't speak to the moral issue. So consider this, even though recognizing I'm not Catholic, you're not Catholic. But a, a young Catholic soldier comes home from, from combat, goes to see the psychiatrist and says, I was in theater, I was on post, uh, I heard a noise in the bushes, I gave the charge, I didn't hear anything, I raised my weapon, I heard that it was getting closer, so I reflexive fired. It's what they taught us to do, reflexive fire. You hear something, you got to fire. And when we went to investigate, it was two little kids, uh, a brother, and he's holding the hand of his little sister, and I can't get their image out of my mind. The psychiatrist is going to say, oh, you don't need to feel guilty about that. You did what anybody would have done. 
I mean, they may have had some weapons on, or they maybe were going to blow up. You did what you were trained to do. Don't feel guilty about that. You did the right thing. That Catholic soldier is going to get up, say, thank you very much, appreciate that. But he's not going to be any better. You think he's the first person that's ever told him, don't feel bad about that? He's going to go next door to the Catholic Church. He's going to go into the confession booth. And he's going to tell that priest, I was in theater, I heard a noise, I raised my weapon, I gave the charge, I didn't hear anything back, there was more rustling in the bushes, I fired reflexively. They teach us to fire reflexively. And that means fire and ask questions later. Sorry, I'm using that. Uh, so I did, and when we went to investigate, there was two little kids, a brother holding his sister's hand, and they were just, just laying there. I can't get their image out of my head. That priest is going to say, yeah, you sinned. You killed those kids. The priest is going to acknowledge it. Now, I'm not necessarily advocating what the priest is going to say next, necessarily, but he's going to say, here's what you need to do now. If you need forgiveness, is what you're looking for. That psychiatrist didn't give forgiveness. That psychiatrist said, you don't have anything to need forgiveness for. But the soldier knows better. Look, uh, we can say the rules don't apply in combat, but I guarantee you, you know, when they were a kid, hey, is it right or wrong to shoot at noises that are people that could be little kids? No, that's wrong. That's totally You can end up killing somebody. That soldier remembers that. That's a core belief. And it doesn't matter what they teach you at Fort Jackson or Camp Lejeune or any place like that. You can't get rid of that, thankfully. That soldier needs forgiveness. This is good news because uh, who better to speak about forgiveness than people who are Christians who know the forgiveness that exists for us in Jesus Christ. So moral injury affects the service member's community. It's not an isolated situation. It's not just a, okay, so uh, we send you and you meet privately and you get help privately for your moral injury because it affects everybody. Uh, especially because the community is viewed as X and the service member believes that he's no longer X but XY. Okay, so how these communities react will in large part determine whether the service member is eventually able to rejoin the group in a healthy way or if they're going to permanently exit the group. So communities that place blame on the service member for not being X, and yes, I have seen that, had lots of soldiers come and tell me reports of what their pastor said or what their elders said, uh, or who condemn them for now being X, Y, cause greater moral injury uh, in many ways, just confirming what the veteran already suspected, that I no longer belong to this group, I'm disqualified from being here, or, yes, I am at permanent enmity between me and this group. So the community has to be involved. Again, that's why you guys are here, hopefully, is because you recognize this can't just happen one-on-one, -on -one, therapist or even just pastor and soldier. So, there are many reasons why it's hard to go from the guy looking at the damage uh, to being able to sit in the pew uh, right there. Man, my time's slipping away. So, here's what the church needs to know. Sincerity doesn't equal success. Here's where the church has failed. There are a lot of things that the church does that they say this is in an effort to welcome people back. Uh, but it is completely, um, it works the opposite. Uh, I won't ask you to raise hands, but uh, any of your churches ever do a Veterans Day barbecue or a Memorial Day barbecue or picnic or something like that, and we're going to recognize our veterans and have them stand up and everybody... Soldiers recognize that 
as being fake. Look, the weather is nice. You wanted to have a barbecue anyway. You're just kind of using me as the excuse or the reason to justify when to have, when should we do our church picnic? Let's do it on Memorial Day. That's a good choice. Putting the names in the bulletin when they come home or asking them to stand up in church. Oh, Specialist Joe Jack is back. Hey, stand up, everybody. Everybody, let's clap for Specialist Joe Jack. No, that's bad. Think about it. Specialist Joe Jack, if he has a moral injury, doesn't know if he can trust anybody here and is wrestling with, I think everyone else is X and I'm XY, and I sure don't want anybody to find out that I'm XY, so I do not want the spotlight or anyone looking at me. Specialist Joe Jack, stand up. Everyone look at him. Everyone applaud for him. Oh, gosh, you don't know what I did on my deployment, and now you're applauding it? Specialist Joe Jack, why don't you come on up and say a few words about what you did in Afghanistan? They want me to come up and out myself as being XY and not X anymore? This is terrifying. I don't know what to do here. Uh, congregations, the whole congregation, going to the airport to welcome the soldier home or having giant parties when they get home. These are not good things. Soldiers don't like big crowds, especially people that they're not that close to. Uh, let them come home to family. So let me give you a quick vignette because there's some other things, and just scan this, and this is not exhaustive at all. There are other issues that soldiers deal with beyond moral injury that include physical, uh, you know, working at the Warrior Transition Battalion, I encounter a lot of people with physical issues, as well as psychological or emotional. So the veteran comes back. Uh, he's met at the uh, entrance to the church. Oh, welcome back. Glad to have you. Come on in. Come on in. And he's ushered to a seat down towards the front. Um, Okay, I didn't want to sit up towards the front. Here, have a seat. He's put in a church. Uh, we're talking about a church with wooden pews or otherwise uncomfortable chairs. You know who you are. Uh, man, this is, this is uncomfortable, especially, you know, after having done 15 jumps and, uh, you know, with a 100-pound uh, ruck on uh, all this time, this is very uncomfortable to sit here. Then realizes the only exit is behind me, and I can't see it. The only entrance point and exit point is behind me, and now I'm getting kind of nervous because I've got some PTSD and I can't see what's happening. And this painful wooden pew is forcing me to look forward the whole time. Then other people fill in and start coming in closer to him, asking him to scoot in. So now he's shoved in between various families. Well, here we go. You know, this is, this is uncomfortable to be here and I'm packed in and I can't see the entrance or exit. Now the youth releases their Sunday school. And so up towards the front, little kids running around all over the place jumping on stuff and some parents you know are super you know get down get down and other parents are just letting them go yeah we can't we forgot a shoe today <laughs> kind of deal this is chaotic and i can't stand it this is not regulated and well ordered i can't stand all of the inputs that are coming in then depending on your flavor of presbyterianism either the organist or your guitar player, boom, all right, let's praise the Lord today. And the person thinks, man, it's so loud. I can't take how loud it is. And you've got the youth, and they're all sitting up in front, and they're clapping their hands. And it, finally we get to the point where the sermon comes, and the pastor gets up and starts talking about God is so good. He's just so good all the time. Everything that he does is good. Everything, because he's good, you know, covenantally, he's good and we can see that. 
And the soldier's thinking, he sure wasn't good to those Afghan kids that I saw on the side of the road that after we passed by and had given them a soccer ball and some candy, the Taliban came and they killed those kids as an example for other kids not to get near us. Sure wasn't good to them. It wasn't our fault. God sure wasn't good to uh, Sergeant Murphy's family because in a couple of months it's going to be Christmas and they're going to be having Christmas without their dad. And he was a good dad. He's a better dad than I ever was. I don't see where God is very good here. Man, my back is killing me. You know what? I, maybe I would just be more comfortable if I got up and, and listened the rest of the way in the foyer. So the soldier gets up, awkwardly kind of moves out of the pew, turns around to start heading towards the back. All eyes on him. Oh, wow. If I ever wondered if I stick out here before, it is verified right here. They are probably all judging me. They're probably, they can probably see it just dripping off me. I'm no longer like them. I'm different. And the truth is, there probably are some members of the church who are seeing him leave and go pace in the foyer and are turning and saying, I wonder if he's got the PTSD. Like it's the flu or something that you can catch. The next week, the same thing happens, except he goes to the foyer sooner. The following week, he just takes a folding chair and just sits in the foyer. Deacons keep coming to him. You sure you wouldn't be more comfortable? No, I'm comfortable right here. The next week he comes, but he just stays in his car in the parking lot. And the next week he doesn't come at all. This is a story that I have heard from soldier after soldier after soldier who were active in their church, leaders in their church, who after their experience, because of their moral injury, just could not go back. So here's what the church needs to know. The following responses were from combat veterans who self-identified as experiencing moral injury, which made it hard for them to continue to practice their faith in community. Okay? And this is, uh, if you've got that sheet in front of you with the uh, eight things, you can take notes on this. Okay? So, number one, please uh, ask if I need help. Don't assume. Uh, please ask if a soldier needs help. Uh, don't just assume that they do, but ask. Okay? Uh, nobody likes it when people assume that they're crazy, even if they are. Um, I'm not saying ask them, are you crazy? But ask them if they need some help. But don't just assume that they need help, okay? So that's one thing. Secondly, don't presume to be close. Soldiers, uh, you know, by and large, when we come home, we have special people that we want to welcome us home. We don't want everybody to come welcome us home. We don't want the whole church to show up at the airport. Now, what happens if the whole church shows up at the airport? Are we going to go, get out of here? No, we're going to put a smile on. We're going to say friendly words like, oh, it's so great that you all did this. Is it what we want it to happen? No, not at all. Okay? Close friends, family. But third, where is the welcome? Soldiers do need something to mark the end of their combat and their return to civilian life. And we're going to get to this, this third point is coming up here. Uh, I may go a little long, but hang with me. It's important, okay? Uh, fourth, but size is important, okay? A, a welcome home or a ritual that takes place to mark the return should be small so that the soldier doesn't suffer from intimidation, anxiety, or fear. Definitely no clapping or extra attention. 
Uh, don't make your barbecue or your ice cream social about me. That is not what the soldier wants. Okay. Five, no surprises. Don't surprise me. Now, I'm not just talking about don't jump out of a closet. Man, if you, <laughs> I mean to this day, if you jump out of a closet at me, I'm, I may kill you. Uh, so the rest of my time at GA, don't jump out of the closet. Uh, don't surprise, don't put me on the spot. Don't ask me to stand and say a few words or to come up to the front for any reason. That's not what we don't. This feels intrusive. Don't probe me. Uh, what's the number one done for the chaplains in the room? What's the, we don't get it asked as much. But what's the number one dumb question civilians ask? Did you kill there you go. Did you kill anybody? I don't want to be asked that question. I may make stuff up. <laughs> I killed all of them. No, I didn't kill anybody. That's not the point. Okay? I'm probably not ready to talk. Okay? When I'm ready to talk, I'll start talking. But don't probe at me. Six, uh, soldiers need some anonymous, confidential way to request support. And I phrase that on purpose. Request support, not ask for help. Soldiers don't ask for help. Sorry, it's not in our nature. But we will request support. That sounds legitimate. But... Uh, you know, this needs to be anonymous. Maybe there's a link on a church website or a phone number or, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, we call it an LNO, a liaison officer, maybe a former vet who understands maybe what we've been through that, that is a church member, somebody that we can contact to say, hey, I could use some support in this particular area. But here's the deal. If the veteran has to ask more than once, he's not going to ask at all. If I call and I don't get somebody responding to the need, it's an automatic write-off. This is not a working thing. Seven, don't talk to the uniform. Don't say welcome home just because you see me in uniform. Uh, man, I can't tell you how many people in airports, when, when I wear my uniform in the airport, are you coming home or are you going? And I think, well, there's a completely different category called TDY where I'm doing something else, but you know, I'm late for my flight. I don't have time to talk to you about it. Uh, some soldiers have not deployed. And when you say, uh, you know, are, you, are you coming home? You can make them feel bad that they haven't deployed. I know a lot of soldiers who are very self-conscious over the fact that in 11 years of war, they haven't deployed. They don't feel like they've done their fair share. Um, so, you know, when, when you see airline people, when you see captains walking through the airport, you typically don't tell them, are you coming home, are you going? Don't do it to somebody just because you see them in uniform, okay? Um, and number eight, and this is a biggie, okay? Stop thanking people for their service. How do I begin to unpack this? Because I'm, I'm conscious of the time. Um, look, you, you've all done it. I won't make you raise your hand. You've all said, yeah, I'm, a, I'm making an assumption. You've all said, hey, thanks for your service. And I know why you've done it, and I appreciate why you've done it. But think about the last time you said thank you for your service to a soldier. Did he then get a big smile on his face? Did he then seem to raise up two inches? Did he seem to walk a little taller, a little prouder as he went on his way? Or did he tend to give you kind of an awkward, humble look, give you maybe a pat phrase, oh, it's an honor, or, you know, thanks for your support, or, you know, just doing my job, you know. I would guarantee you that when a civilian and a soldier meet and the civilian says, thanks for your service, 99.9% .9 of the time, of the two, of when they walk away, it's the civilian who feels better and the soldier who feels worse. Again, trying to think the order to unpack this in. You don't know what my service is. Now, I'm a chaplain, so 
you can be somewhat assured. <laughs> Doug's kind of worried, Jonathan, what did you do on your deployment? You don't know what happened to me on, on my deployment. Now, I'm very proud of my deployment. I'm proud of what I did over there. I, I'm very pleased at what God was pleased to do through me. But there are things that happened on my deployment, grand scale. There are things that I observed on my deployment. And there are things that I personally did and engaged in that I'm not proud of at all, that I would not want to bring up to anybody. And when you say, thank you for your service, to me, that's not separated from those things. So I feel awkward. You don't know what you're thanking me for. And if you knew all of what you're thanking me for, I'm not positive that you would thank me. So this has made this really awkward reminder for me that I was kind of injured by my service. So it's just an honor to serve. You go to your airplane, I'll go to my airplane. Secondly, maybe I'm at thirdly, I don't know. Uh, when you say thank you for your service, is service a positive word or a negative word in general? It's a positive word. It's an optimistic word. There is an exchange, especially in a church community, when people say thanks for your service, there's kind of an unspoken, look, you went and we didn't, therefore, in a sense, we sent you because you fought on our behalf, even if we didn't have a sending party, although some people do, uh, you went on our behalf, and we're thanking you for your service. Now, uh, you may not like what I'm about to say, but subconsciously, this is what it works for for a soldier. When you say thanks for your service, that helps you sleep well at night because what's happening is, hey, you went on our behalf, so we're responsible for it. So if I call it service, then I can say you went on my behalf to go do service and good things. Thank you very much. Good night. It prevents you from taking ownership of what the soldier did. I'm not saying this to try and make anybody feel bad. I'm saying this to try and communicate. This is what soldiers get subconsciously. Why do I not feel good when I'm thanked for my service? This is the last I'll say on this, but I'm happy to talk to anybody about, about this particular issue. When you say thanks for your service, it's like telling me that you're a big fan. In fact, I have people come and tell me, oh, we're big fans of the military. We don't need fans. When you tell me that you're a fan, what happens is you have just guaranteed that you and I will never be friends. If you go to, to, uh, to Yankee Stadium and you see Derek Jeter, and Derek Jeter, he was a baseball player, and he's running, uh, running down the uh, little tunnel to go back to the locker room. If you're up there and you go, Derek Jeter, I'm your biggest fan. What happened there? You just categorized the two of you. Derek Jeter, you and I are different, and I admire you. You've just guaranteed, I mean, not that it's probably going to happen anyway, but you've guaranteed you and Derek Jeter are never going to be friends. You're never going to be peers. He's never going to call you. He's never going to talk to you about if he's old or if he feels bad or if he played a good game or what his cat is like or how his marriage is, he's never going to talk to you about any of those things because you are his fan. And that's where you will always stay because you categorized it that way. As soldiers, we carry rucksacks. They're these big packs and they hold a lot of weight. As we live and work and deploy, I, I use the analogy that we put a lot of weight, a lot of stuff gets into that rucksack. Some of it good, the good stuff are helium balloons. The bad stuff are bricks. And if you're doing a ruck march, that's a lot of people going with all this weight. When you see somebody who's going real slow, you can tell they're tired. 
one of the kindest acts you can do is come up alongside of them and you kind of grab the bottom of that rucksack. Doug, I'm sure you've done this. It's a great thing for chapel to do. Grab that thing and just lift a little. You're not taking it off. You're just lifting some of that weight up. And it's just temporary. You can't continue to do this. First, I'm going to get mad. But, oh, that feels so good. What a relief to have somebody lift just a portion of this. Even if it's just for about 10 steps, I can get my pace back up where it's supposed to be. I've got a head of fuel, and I'm reminded, you know what? I'm not the only one out here rucking. There's somebody rucking along with me. When you tell a soldier, thanks for your service, what he hears is, I'm glad that you do that. Thank you for you doing that, so that I don't have to do that, so you keep doing that. And what the soldier experiences is, okay, this is not someone who will lift up on my ruck. This is someone confirming for me, this ruck is mine. Cinch it down harder, get it up there. I will continue to ruck in isolation amongst this group that is not wearing a rucksack. Okay, so, man, I have to fly through this. I'm sorry. Please, I, I, I beg, if you've got to be somewhere, I understand, but I, I will try to go quick because here's, here's where our lane is, okay? The moral community is responsible. They need to be the ones who are healing these moral injuries, okay? Uh, through reconstruction of damaged uh, covenants and trust. This involves making amends, asking and accepting forgiveness, and ritual, yes, the R word. Church leaders can serve as adjuncts to moral repair. In fact, they are the ones who are uniquely qualified and positioned to be able to do this because these are moral injuries, okay? So, rituals. The healing path we've gone through, the rite of combat is a ritual. Why a ritual? Okay, check out this definition. It's mine. Rituals transform ordinary actions into emotionally involved communication about an actual event which has taken place with present and future meaning. That's a super long definition, and it is all mine. <laughs> so examples would be a marriage ceremony. That's a ritual. It's, it's taking an ordinary event, two people standing there talking to each other, infusing it with the emotionally involved communication, which represents an action that's taken place. I've declared my love and commitment to you with present, right now, and future implications. Okay, I see that. Baptism, same kind of thing. A funeral, same kind of thing. Saying grace before a meal, same kind of thing. There are lots of rituals that we do, ritually, that you're probably not aware of. So when I say ritual, a lot of times I get people who get wide-eyed and think, ritual, oh my goodness, what are, you really are Catholic, oh my goodness. No, we do lots of rituals all the time. I want to give you two secular examples to talk briefly about the power of this. This little ribbon here, can any chaplain identify this? Five points if you can. No, you're not going to be able to. It is the British Iraqi Campaign Medal. I have a soldier, a non-Christian, he calls himself non-spiritual. He was uh, responsible for air, uh, air combat control, and uh, previously uh, the British had suffered casualties from the U.S.'s hands. Yeah, it wasn't in the news, uh, because the air came in and they fired at the wrong vehicles and they killed British soldiers. So when uh, my soldier came, he was the air traffic guy, and the British soldiers told him, hey, look, we don't want happening what happened the last time we were here. And this guy said, you know, look, we're going to keep you safe. We're going to do the right things. We're not going to let that happen. Well, he shouldn't have made that promise, but he did because that's his job, but he doesn't have the final authority. So long story short, the British are out. 
they're requesting support. He's the middleman, and he can see this is no good. But the people above him said, send in our attack helicopters and have them lay it down. So he can see this whole thing. And, of course, they end up firing on the wrong vehicles and kill more British soldiers. Now, nobody came to him and said, you promised us, blah, 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 blah. But for him, that was an extreme moral injury. This guy who is in the WTB, every spare moment, literally, obsessively, every spare moment is seeing if he can somehow qualify for the British Iraqi campaign medal because it's sometimes given to Americans who participate with British troops uh, in Iraq. And he qualifies for it because of that, but it's kind of a rigmarole to get all the paperwork done and whatever else. And I've told him, I said, look, I can go on eBay and buy you a British Iraqi campaign medal. They sell them. For him, no, I need this from the British. Tell me why you need this from the British. Because if the British will give me this campaign medal, it will mean that we're reconciled. It will mean that they forgive me for what happened. It, it will mean that I've been redeemed from what I let happen. That's a powerful example that's secular. Okay, we're not even talking about a spiritual thing. Secondly, taps. Now, when I typically do this presentation, normally I have four hours to do it, I play the full length of taps. Taps, trivial pursuit, taps played the correct length is one minute and two seconds. And every time I play it, uh, I can tell who are veterans, who are soldiers, because all of them, their demeanor changes. I've never seen a soldier, uh, past or present, be able to listen to taps and just kind of act like, when's this going to end? I've had people break down crying when they hear it. That's just a song played by one instrument for one minute. So rituals have power. Their power comes from uh, the value that the person going through the ritual attaches to or applies to the ritual itself, which is why ticker tape parades or formations in a hangar or a barbecue or things like that are nice, but they don't do the job. They are not the weighty, sacred things that soldiers need because rituals provide acknowledgement of what happened. They provide an avenue for confession, for forgiveness, for redemption and reconciliation. The best picture of this is in Luke 15. Okay? Luke 15 is a beautiful picture because with the younger son and the older son, we see moral injury taking place. The younger son, he's suffering from guilt and shame. Okay? And he struggles to know, am I really your son or not? In fact, when I come home, I don't know that I can be your son. Maybe I can work third hand. Maybe I can work... Not, not even for money. Maybe I can apprentice for somebody who works for you. And so he comes home, and the father gives him ritual. Here is the best robe. Here's the family ring. Here's shoes for your feet. Uh, we're going to have a party. If there was not, and he does it in public, because his sin was kind of against the village. Had he not provided that ritual, the son may have, you know, if he just said, well, good to see you. You look hungry. Why don't you go inside, get something out of the fridge, and, uh, you know, clean yourself up. The son would have probably stuck his head in the fridge, grabbed some cold cuts, but then had no faith. As soon as I pull my head out of this fridge, I have no reason not to believe that my father's out there with a sword ready to cut my head off. But because of the ritual, publicly running to him, embracing him, declaring, you know, bring the family ring, this is family, We're gonna, and, and prepare a party, 
that son was able to have his faults acknowledged, forgiven. He confessed. He was forgiven. He was redeemed. He was reconciled. The older boy comes home. He's got anger. What in the world is this noise going on? And he has doubt in terms of the relationship. You know, he says, you know, uh, all these years I've slaved for you, but this son of yours, he's clearly your son, but I don't know about me. And the father provides ritual for him too. Did you know this? That for the father to get up from his own party and come outside to a guest who wouldn't come in? I mean, that was just as rude as saying, I wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance. So the dad provides ritual for him too, comes out, forgives, confirms the relationship. Son, you and all that I have is yours. We will always be together. Provides a change in perspective. You see a brother who is no good who's come back. We don't know from the story. Maybe the older brother had kids. Imagine my perspective as a dad whose son was dead and is now made alive. You're right. You don't throw a party for a brother who's no good who comes back. But if you're a dad and your kid was dead and now he's alive, you have to throw a party. You have to. So, uh, I put these up here. Don't freak out. I'm not advocating these necessarily. But what needs to happen is for the church community to be able to hold ritual for our soldiers when they come home. These are up here, not as I'm advocating them, but in the same idea of, look, if we can redeem pub songs and drinking songs and change them into great hymns of the faith, then I think that there are other forms of ritual that we can take and we can redeem, we can craft for God's glory to help bring back those who have experienced moral injury. I'm going to skip that one for right now. Uh, I'm going to skip that too. Uh, here's, a, here's a sample script uh, that has been used, uh, that I've used, uh, for soldiers with moral injury. Um, uh, you know, there, there's reference to Christ, uh, to his scars, uh, our, our being separated, him bringing us back in, in uh, Romans, who shall separate us from the love of God. And the, uh, the actual uh, ritual part that we did, people, uh, soldiers prayed uh, about asking God for forgiveness for the things that were on their heart, the weightier matters of the things for their deployment. Uh, they didn't have to speak them out to us, but there was acknowledgement, look, you folks probably experienced on your deployment things that you are not proud of, violations of what you know is right and wrong. I want you to think about those things. I want you to pray about those things, confess those things, and then each of them had a stone, and we had them come, uh, after they had done that, uh, on their, each on their own, place their stone into this bucket that was in the center of the, of the circle and then walk away from it. And that was the, the laying over of it, and, and the bucket stayed with me. So there was a, look, you know, the, the guilt, the responsibility, the weight of this, someone else is taking from you. You know, I'm not, I'm not Christ, obviously, but I'm, re, I'm symbolically, physically in front of you removing this from you now. Uh, and very positive response uh, to that uh, that we had. You can hear more talks like this by subscribing to the Gifts and Graces podcast. You can also hear more content like this by attending a seminar at General Assembly. They are free and open to the public. Find out times and locations by visiting pcaga.org. Thanks for listening to Gifts and Graces.